If I were to ask you, uh, what was the most dangerous profession in the United States? If I were, so let's, I'll just ask you, uh, what's the most dangerous, what's maybe one of the most dangerous professions in the United States? How might you answer? Police officer, taxidermist? Or taxi driver, that makes more sense. Taxidermist, maybe the animal wasn't dead. Ah! <laughs> Catfish hunter? Crab fishermen, okay. Um, all good suggestions, especially the ones from the fourth row up here. <laughs> According to OSHA, though, the government agency which monitors these things, the most dangerous profession in the country is, wait for it, being a mom. <laughs> Makes all the sense in the world, but actually, no, a postal worker. Yeah, whoa, hey. Uh, the stats, these stats are just a few years old, but as of a few years ago, postal workers actually have the highest number, number of, of deaths and severe injuries of any profession in the nation. Uh, workers for the United States Postal Service endure traffic accidents, angry dogs, bees and hornets, holes in the ground, cracks in the sidewalk, heat stroke, freezing temperatures, angry people with firearms... <laughs> and many other threats. Uh, the Postal Service had more than twice the number of injuries than did workers at Walmart, which is apparently the second most dangerous place <laughs> to work in the United States for reasons I can't imagine. Now, now, now part of the USPS's high ranking is the result of its ginormous workforce, uh, but even when you calculate, you know, for the rate of severe injuries as opposed to the number of injuries, it still ranks fourth behind Tyson Foods, Pilgrim's Pride, and Waste Management. So apparently there's something about chicken factories that you don't want to be a part of. In fact, USPS management reports that they have $18.8 billion worth of liability owed to employees who were severely injured on the job. It can be a dangerous thing getting the word out. The Apostle Paul knew this. Uh, Paul was kind of a post office worker if you think about it. He traveled around the Roman Empire delivering the good news of the gospel. He faced persecution and hunger and weather and dogs and beasts. But he never gave up on his route. And he delivered the good news of the perseverance with the perseverance of your most devoted male carrier. For Paul knew he had an important message to deliver. The fate of the world depended on that message getting through. And Paul also understood that God was with him. Through prayer, through the power of the Spirit, through the perseverance of Jesus Christ, God was going to protect him from the dangers of the job. And we read of Paul's confidence in the book of 2 Thessalonians. Now, we've been studying Paul's letters to the Thessalonians here at Rooftop the past few months in our series called More and More. Uh, if you're sort of new to the Bible, quick, I don't know, recap. Paul was a first century Christian missionary and an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. He traveled around the Roman Empire preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and starting new churches. Uh, one of the first churches he started was in the Greek seaside village of Thessalonica. Now, the apostle was run out of town of Thessalonica for seditious activities, but not before he just started this 
church and formed a real bond with the new converts there. Paul loved them enough to keep in touch with them through heartfelt letter writing in which he offers them encouragement and instructions and he answers some of their questions. Now this morning's passage, it's the second to last passage that we're going to look at uh, in this series before we start a, a new series in a couple weeks. It's a really short, real simple passage It might not be as controversial as some of the others that we've studied as part of this series, but it's important. Because in this short paragraph, Paul describes to us the confidence, the confidence that we can have as we're doing God's work. We can have confidence that as we deliver his message, and as we build up his church, and as we serve the world with the love of Jesus, and as we conform our lives to Jesus, we can have confidence that the Lord is with us through prayer and can protect us from any dangers of the job. So let me go ahead and read you the passage. It comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Before we dig into this passage, just go ahead and just pray that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our ears to hear and see what he has to say to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, I'm humbled to uh, stand here in front of your people, in front of your open word, I pray that we can hear what you have to say to us this morning, that we find encouragement, and that we are challenged by your words through Paul to us and to all of your people everywhere. Help us not be defensive or proud, but humble and teachable. I pray for the world right now that we're here to serve. I know I pray specifically for Hawaii. I know it's been in the news this week as they've, Maui has suffered lots of death and destruction. I know Gina, uh, rooftopper here, her daughter Tristan's out in Hawaii, lost her home and all everything she owned. So I pray for that family and for everybody suffering. May the peace of Christ be with them. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so in this final section uh, of Paul's letter, th- this is the final section of his letter, and and Paul has just finished a very involved and very lengthy teaching on the, on the end of the world, which we've discussed. And before he signs off, though, he does want to address just a couple remaining topics. The first is the matter of the preaching of the gospel itself. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, Paul says, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. So 
like we've established, Paul was a missionary. He had been sent by the Spirit into the world to tell the world about Jesus. That's what he had been doing in Thessalonica. And it had worked there. The message had taken root. A healthy little church had sprung up. Now Paul had been forced to move on. He was likely in the city of Corinth doing the work there. As we know Paul, he was a very capable individual. He's a very motivated individual. He had a track record of success, but still he knew he needed help. He knew he couldn't do it on his own. So he asked for prayer. Pray for us, he says. Pray for me. Pray for my companions. Pray for us. Pray that the message might spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. Pray that what happened in Thessalonica, the miracle of Thessalonica, pray that that happens everywhere. And you should note that this isn't just like a one-time request that Paul makes either. Paul was always asking his churches to pray for him. In the letter to the Ephesians, for example, he writes, Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. To the Romans, he writes, Join me in my struggle Here's how you can join me in my struggle, by praying to God for me. To the Corinthians, he writes, help us. Here's how you can help us, by your prayers. I don't need your ideas. I don't need your money. I don't need your advice. I need your prayers. I need God's help through your prayers. So this is a theme of the apostles, asking for prayer. And it's more than just a polite request, too. He's not just politely, hey, if you think about it, pray for me. It's not even a desperate plea. Paul's not asking here. This is a spiritual command. There's an insistence to it as though the work of God will fail unless you pray for me. The gospel won't go out unless you pray for me. People will go to hell unless you pray for me. My life is at risk unless you pray for me. Paul even says that here in Thessalonians. He goes on in verse 2, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. Not everyone understands what we're doing. There are people who are just opposed to what we are doing, Paul says. And we know who they are. Romans, they objected to the idea that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. That was their objection. And they weren't like, you know, kind about it. They were out to get Paul and anybody who challenged that message. Uh, a lot of the Jews were opposed to Jesus as the Messiah. Not everyone has faith. And not only do these people not have faith, but they're after me, Paul says. It's not that they disagree with me or that they politely tolerate what we're doing. They're after us. And we see this in the Bible. These opponents of the gospel, they chased Paul out of town. They put him on trial. They stoned him to the point of death. Paul had evaded them so far and not let it impede his work. But with enemies like this, he knew he needed help. So he asks for it. He demands it even. Pray for us. I think that simple command is worth reflecting on deeply. Pray for us. Pray that we preach the gospel in a way that it spreads rapidly and is honored as it was here. Pray that God protects us from wicked people. Do we do that? Do we believe in the centrality and the importance of prayer as we're out there doing God's work? I've confessed to you before my own struggles with prayer. I mean, don't get me wrong, I certainly pray. I pray a ton. I pray in the morning, pray before meals. 
I pray with people. I pray with you. I pray with my wife and kids before bed. I pray throughout the day. I pray whenever I stub my toe. I pray anytime Adam Wainwright pitches. I pray constantly. And I know why I need to pray. I know what the Bible says about prayer. Prayer is asking our Father in heaven to do important things that we cannot do on our own. Prayer, it's not just a religious act. Prayer is not just a religious act. Prayer is us coming to terms with our own limitations as people. But also learning to trust that our Father in heaven cares for us and wants to help us and wants to empower us in real world ways. I know all that, but still, I've just had too many unanswered prayers in my life to know how this is supposed to work. It's hard to pray with Paul's confidence given the frustrating unpredictability of God's response. On the other hand, I've also seen God help me and others too much through prayer to give up on it. And I certainly trust Jesus who lived a life of prayer. I mean, Jesus rose from the dead, right? People who rise from the dead, their lives should be emulated. Jesus prayed a lot. I'm gonna do that too. (laughs) So at the end of it, Prayer, it's like the thing I just can't quit. It's like the bears or the cubs for you people from Chicago. No matter how many times they break your heart, you just can't quit them, can you? That's prayer for me. Just can't quit. Now, I know that part of my struggle with prayer And maybe part of yours is, you know, we are modern people. We live in a society where we've convinced ourselves we can do anything on our own. I mean, we have robots serving us food up at Las Fuentes. Have you been to Las Fuentes recently, the Mexican restaurant up the street? They have a robot who will serve you your food. Wow, this is 21st century. Uh, We do microsurgery on babies in the womb. What? Our earth is surrounded by... 8,000 satellites orbiting the globe, allowing us to communicate with anyone anywhere. What? (laughs) Who needs God? Who needs prayer, we might wonder. But you know as well as I do, there are some things that we will never be able to do, like change hearts and minds and free people from sins and addictions and overcome death. I think missionaries like Paul get this more than normal people which is why he was so desperate for prayer. I mean, they just face too much opposition, too many steep hills to think that they can do these things on their own. Uh, this summer, for example, uh, Rooftop, or a couple months ago, hosted a missionary couple that we've gotten to know very well over the years. Hudson and Rachel, they were here. They're serving in an undisclosed location <laughs> around the globe because they're doing dangerous work in a part of the world that their lives could be at risk. And it was so good to see them, their old friends, Hudson and Rachel are, but I was just so challenged while they were here by their dependence on prayer. I mean, they, they didn't come home here to St. Louis to ask for more money. They came here asking for prayer. When Michelle, Jason, Liza, and I met with them for dinner, they wanted to know how they could pray for us and our families and for Rooftop. They wanted to meet with some church members just for the purpose of praying for changed hearts 
among the people they were serving uh, back where they're serving. I mean, these are people that they love. These are people that they're serving with the gospel. They want them to come to faith, and they know that the robot at Las Fuentes can't help them with that. Neither can satellites. The spread of the gospel into the world, into our hearts, it takes something else. It takes prayer. We need to believe that. Even in spite of our doubts, we need to remember that our powers are limited, but God's love, God's power is just not. In fact, I keep these little prayer cards up on my wall in my office to remind me of that. Uh, These were the prayer cards, the original prayer cards uh, that Michelle and I, my wife and I, sent out to our original support team back in 1999. as we were laying the groundwork for what would become rooftop. Everyone in our prayer team had a certain day of the month uh, that they would pray on. Mine was the 17th. This was the only day that I prayed for my church. (laughs) But it was a great day for everybody. Everybody looked forward to the 17th. What's going to happen to me on the 17th? Matt's going to be praying for me. But we all knew, we all knew what we were praying for. It says right here on the card, please pray for Matt and Michelle Herndon as they work to launch a creative, evangelistic, and biblical church in the St. Louis area. Pray especially for their developing ministry and the people God is attracting to their cause. Pray also for the health of their family and their spiritual, emotional, and financial readiness. I don't know how prayer works. But I know this, this has been too difficult to have done on our own, and I know here we are, a creative evangelistic biblical church in the St. Louis area. That was the goal, and I know that everything else we want to do, start more creative evangelistic biblical churches, send out more missionaries, help more people, do more baptisms, it's going to take more than we're capable of, it's going to take more than robots at Las Fuentes, the work of the gospel is too hard for us to not depend on God in prayer every day of the month. Pray for us, Paul says, with an insistence that we should pay attention to. Let's keep rolling. So after Paul gives this instruction, he makes a really interesting turn here in this passage. After requesting prayer in verses 1 and 2, he goes on in verse 3. Pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. For not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. See, the apostle requests prayer for God to protect him from evil people while he delivers the message of the gospel. And then he reassures the Thessalonians that while there are evil people about who lack faith, God, by contrast, is faithful. And he will strengthen and protect you, the Thessalonians, from the evil one. So pray for me that God protects me from faithless evil people, but know also that God is faithful and protect you, not just from evil people, but from the evil one himself. Don't just pray for me, pray for yourselves. Because even though we are out here delivering the news, avoiding dogs, dangerous sidewalks, and evil people, the evil one himself is after you. Now, who is the evil one? Could it be Satan? You have to be over 48 years old to understand that joke. 
And I see a lot of you who are older than 48 years old not laughing, which makes me wonder if I should try this at the third service or not. But that would be the devil, the evil one. That would be the devil. That would be the snake. That would be the one who opposes all good works of God in the world. You see, the evil one is not just out there in the world opposing the spread of the gospel. He's in our lives. He's in our families. He's in our churches, keeping us from living our lives to the fullest. And this is also something that Christians need to reflect on. We need to reflect on whether or not we actually believe in prayer. And we need to reflect on whether or not we actually believe in the devil. Because the Bible says he's real. We have an enemy, and our enemy isn't who we think it is. Our enemy is not our least favorite of the presidential candidates. Our enemy is not Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping of China. Our enemy is not John Mozeliak or Stan Kroenke, although I can understand how you would think that. We have an enemy, and here's who our enemy is. Our enemy is a supernatural being. This should intimidate you. A supernatural being fallen from heaven at the head of an evil and invisible army who deceives and distracts and leads people away from their divine destiny. Peter says that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And by someone, he means you. And by devour, he means kill. Lead away from God, the only source of eternal life and truth. Do you understand that you have an enemy? If you don't understand this, then the enemy is doing his job pretty well because the enemy likes staying invisible so we don't feel threatened by him. Our enemy does some of his best work in the shadows. Our enemy is like Voldemort in Harry Potter, who was perfectly fine with nobody believing that he had come back. But our enemy is real, alive, around, prowling about, searching for opportunities to keep us from Jesus. And our enemy has quite an arsenal of weapons that he deploys against us. I mean, here's what our, our enemy does. Our enemy tempts us with seemingly harmless sins that turn into lifelong addictions. The enemy gives us all sorts of decent excuses for remaining apart from Christ's body, his church. The enemy creates tiny little conflicts in our families and congregations that tear apart generations. The enemy makes us doubt the truth of the gospel and confuses our minds with innocent lies and heresies. The enemy whispers to us that God can't really love us because we're really not that lovable and what we've done is just too shameful. Some of us here this morning are absolutely enslaved to the enemy of God, and we don't even know it. And he's perfectly content with that. He doesn't care if he gets the credit, the enemy. And the rest of us are fighting a constant battle against him, and one we might be losing. Whatever the case, though, whatever your case, Paul assures us here that the God who will protect him can also protect us from the enemy. For the Lord is faithful, writes the apostle. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. So yes, we have an enemy, but we also have a father. We have a Lord who rules over heaven and earth and, this is important, under the earth. The Lord rules over our enemy. 
We have a Savior who drove out demons and overcame death. The Lord is faithful to his children. He's not going to let us be destroyed by the evil one. He offers us strength. He offers us protection. Now, how does he do that? That sounds nice. The Lord offers you strength and the Lord offers you protection. But it's how, how does he do that? Paul doesn't explain that. Spell that out here. But he's told us elsewhere. Here's how it works. It happens by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, this is what he does. When we become followers of Christ, we open up our lives to the presence of power of God inside of us. God enters us to give us courage and wisdom and hope and love. And as we depend on his word and the prayers of his people, we grow stronger in the spirit, stronger in his strength. It's not unlike one of my favorite Marvel scenes. When frail, wimpy, runty, little Stevie Rogers goes into that chamber and he receives that experimental super soldier serum, which, what's that? Doesn't matter. The super soldier serum. Holy Spirit. That's what happens. This is a conversion. It's a Christian conversion. That's it. And he comes out as big, beefy superhero Captain America. I know it's a comic book, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but Christians believe in something like that. We believe that something like that happens in our minds and spirits when we give our lives to Jesus. You see, on our own, we're all wimpy little Stevies. (laughs) We're all little Stevies not fit to serve in the U.S. military. But the Holy Spirit is our super soldier serum. When we're baptized, we receive the seeds of the Spirit who grows inside of us so that we have strength and wisdom to resist the devil who, wouldn't you know, it looks a lot like Red Skull anyway. (laughs) And, And for what it's worth, Voldemort. I don't know why it is, but all the bad guys don't have noses. God makes this promise to us. When you become a Christian, you receive seeds of his power. Now it takes time for the seeds to grow. It can take years. It can take decades. But as you grow in the spirit, you can resist sin like you couldn't before. You can love people like you couldn't before. You can feel joy that you didn't before. You can endure suffering that you couldn't before. You can obey God in ways that you couldn't before. Paul had experienced that. Paul had seen it in Thessalonica. This was the miracle of Thessalonica. And this is the miracle of Rooftop. Many of us in this room have experienced the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. I've seen it. God's seen it. Paul's seen it. And that's why he can say, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. We have confidence in the Lord on this, Paul says, because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. I don't want to get lost in the weeds here as we're winding down, but this is what's called a confidence formula. And Paul actually uses confidence formulas often, Uh, He talks about his confidence in a way that he hopes other people can draw confidence from. It's like a little league coach, like talking to one of his players, like, okay, you can do this. You can do this. I have confidence in you. You might not have confidence in yourself, but I have confidence in you. Now go up to the plate. For example, he writes to the believers in Corinth, I have confidence in all of you. 
that you would share in my joy. The rest of the Galatians, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. And to Philemon, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. So you might not be confident that the Lord is faithful. You might not be confident that the Lord can help you in all the ways you need him to. You might not be confident that Jesus is coming soon. But I am. Draw on my confidence. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not confident in you. Paul wasn't confident in the Thessalonians. They're wimpy little Stevies. Who's he confident in? The Holy Spirit inside of them. We have confidence. Next verse. We have confidence in the Lord. I'm confident that the same Lord in the Lord who delivered his people through the Red Sea can deliver you through your doubt and through your despair. I'm confident that the same God who raised his son from the dead can give you hope and joy as you stare down cancer, disease, and bankruptcy. I'm confident that the same God who has been giving wisdom to his people through generations can give you wisdom as you deal with that gnarly family or work situation. I'm confident that the same God who gave righteousness to Noah and to Enoch and strength to Hezekiah and Josiah can give you righteousness as you battle your sins and addictions and temptations. I'm confident that the same God who heard the prayers of Hannah and Hagar and Ruth and the same God who revealed himself to Moses and Jacob and Joshua, that same God can hear your prayers and reveal himself to you. You might not be confident of these things. I might not be confident of these things. But Paul is confident that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Even if you haven't seen God work, I have. I've seen him work in Thessalonica. I've seen him work in Corinth. I've seen him work in Antioch. I've seen him work in Jerusalem. I've seen him work here at Rooftop, and he's still working. So pray for us with confidence, he says. Pray that what God's doing here, he might do everywhere. Pray for the pastors, the missionaries, the leaders, the elders, the deacons. Pray that God protects them from the evil people who are out there looking to thwart what God's doing. Pray that the message gets through no matter how dangerous and difficult the job is. Pray for us and we'll pray for you. We'll pray that the same God who raised his son Jesus from the dead gives you strength to resist the evil one so that you can know the hope, the joy, and the glory that is available to God's children in Jesus Christ. Pray for us from the evil one with confidence.